0: The Life of Christ By Rod Anderson (music) Lesson 7 Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We ask that again that you guide us into more truth as we walk through these principles, Father, that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Life of Christ, hour number seven. We're just finishing up about the prodigal. If you're on twenty page 25, we just finished where, again, the father has received the prodigal back. And uh, I'll just read that again where he said, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead. He is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to make merry. In other words, so as far as father's concerned, he's absolutely blessed. This man, his son has repented. He's not brought back anything as I have in the bottom paragraph. Note the father's silence regarding the confession. There there was not an attempt on his part to make any excuse. He received the confession of his son. There was nothing that could be done to change the awful past. He had nothing to say about it, for the confession was true, but he did not open the wound fresh. He was mercifully silent about the sins of the young man. Thank God the Father does not charge a repentant man with his past sins. Praise God. As it says, though your sins are as scarred, they're washed white as snow. So the celebration, the fatted calf is killed and prepared, the soiled clothes are destroyed, and new garments are put on, the whole house is summoned to participate in in the rejoicing and to celebrate the return, for this my son was dead, and is alive. He was lost and is found. And I put down there, who do the servants represent? And I said the key is found in the first two parables, of course, where Jesus said, "Likewise, I say unto you again, there is repentance. Excuse me, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth." Now we come to the point about the other brother, the elder son. Luke 15, verse 25 to 28. says, Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and said, What do these things mean? And he said unto them, Thy brother has come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And, of course, the difference is here, it says, The elder brother says, And he was angry. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. Now the elder brother... Represents religion. <laughs> he very simply re- represents the religious <laughs> children of God. It's just that simple. One son was loose. The other one was religious. He hears the celebration. Point B, he becomes angry at the reason for the celebration, the return of his brother. His brother had been the black sheep of the family and had disgraced him. This was not. Now, hear, what, hear what's being said here. As I could put down here, this is not the time for festivities. This is the time for discipline. This is the time to put the guy on the rack and let everybody see just how horrible he is and what needs to happen to him because of the sin that he's been involved in. Uh, Again, it's just incredible. It says, this was not the time for festivities, but for discipline. What his brother needed was a strong lecture, he felt, and discipline that he would not forget. Points, it's evident that the father had trouble with this son too. Here we see him angry, and indignant, not willing to come into the house. The father entreats him, but his reply is definitely not that of a son with respect for his father. So verse 29 through 30 says, And he answering said to his father, when his father came out to say, Hey, come on in, he said, Lo, these many years did I serve you, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed him, killed for him the fatted calf. So the basically, the elder son is accusing the father. When you hear this, when you really hear this, the elder son is accusing the father of rewarding unfaithfulness, and immorality. And the reason, again, I slow down on that is like uh, it's very difficult to communicate to some pastors about this stuff. That uh, again, we go back to the issue of if there's true repentance. You know, doing to others as you would have them doing to you. If you truly, truly, truly were sorry and you brought forth fruits meet for repentance. In other words, if we saw, again, like the situation that I spoke to in the last hour about Paul and Corinthians with this person that had been caught into incest, evidently what had taken place there is this man had been meeting with the leadership or what have you, and the leaders knew that he was legitimate, that he had repented. Now, think about it. Now, and to me, that just, that. When we teach on the love walk, it does blow my mind because Paul said there, Re- reinstate this man back into your affections. I write this to test your attitude, whether you obey me in all things. And he said, but be, let's be careful. He said, "Lest Satan get an advantage over us. But what hits me is think about if somebody had committed incest in your church. Now, incest is a horrible thing. I mean, you know, it's like child molestation or something, but it's, you know, man having, you know, uh, relationships with his mother. The guy's excommunicated from church, so let's figure a year, maybe 18 months goes by. You've not seen this person in church at all, but everybody knows what happened. You know what I mean? Everybody knows about the story of this person's sin. Nobody's seen him in church for 18 months or two years. Imagine you at church on a Sunday morning. Really, 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 really put yourself there when you know the whole sad story of what happened, but it's been a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. This guy's been kicked out of the church. This woman was kicked out of the church. But imagine coming to church on a Sunday morning and the pastor walks out on the platform and he has by his hand or has his arm around this person. Now, picture now, ask yourself, what's the very first thing that's going to go through your mind and go through your spirit when you see this person? Think about it. I mean, you're going to see them through the filter of everything that you knew about what happened, aren't you? But think about now this man of God, the pastor stands up and says this, this man has repented. Now listen, this man has repented. Listen to what Paul said. I beg of you to reinstate him into your affections. Now what that says in the Greek is just that. Put him back into the place that you thought of him before he ever sinned. Now we can say that, but think about that. Think about now he's asking you to look at this individual that your mind knows this hunk of meat between your ears is remembering everything that took place and all the talk and what have you. But now this apostle stands up and says, you need to reinstate this man into the place and your affections that he was before he fell, lest Satan get an advantage over all of us. In other words... So now whose opportunity is it to be in sin? The whole congregation, if they're not able to reinstate this person back into the place that he was before he fell. I want to tell you something, that's where the rubber meets the road right there. That's where we find out if we believe this stuff or not, whether or not we can actually conceive loving with that kind of love to where we can put your arm around somebody and no longer see them through the filter of what they had done before. Now, think about it. It's easy to talk about in theory, theory, isn't it? But this is what God has done with us, you see. We have to keep seeing this. All of these parables, all these stories, Jesus Christ is turning the world upside down, and you and I are supposed to follow this guy. (laughs) We're called to be his disciples. i got to tell you something. This is why you have to know how to walk by faith, because it is not... All of us meet unlovely, ugly, wicked, mean-spirited people. All of us have people that hurt us. All of us have people that do despicable things and speak all manner of evil against us, as Scripture says. But to be able to look past that and to say, I choose a better way, I choose a higher path, I choose to let go of is it resentment, ill will, bitterness. I, remember that Scripture says you need to let go of resentment because it doth eat like a canker? resentment, and envy, and stuff like Envy is rottenness to the bones, it says, and um, bitterness, it says, is a, is a root of all evil. A, a root of bitterness will spring up, the many be defiled. But it says, it doth eat like a canker, and it's true. You know, even physiologically in science and medics, medicine, though, that's what they'll say. They'll say that people, a lot of people that have cancers are people that store bitterness away. They do not know how to let go. I, I have a graphic story about a close friend of mine who had was dying of cancer. She's Actually, she went through her whole age and lived a long life and was healed and is now in heaven. But Florence was a good friend of ours, and many, many years ago she was desperately hurt by a guy in ministry, desperately hurt. She was a very wealthy woman. If I gave her last name, you'd know because of all the wineries that they, they, they're famous for wine. And she was a multimillionaire lady, and this guy had a vision for something, and she wanted to be a blessing. She loved the Lord. We all went to the same church together, and she blessed this guy that was a friend of mine with a quarter of a million dollars. It was a long time ago, but in the, it, but when I a quarter million dollars, was a lot of money. <laughs> but you bless this guy with a quarter of a million dollars to start this boys' ranch, and basically, long story short, he never started ministering to boys. All he did was prepare to minister. He bought this some equipment. He he put a down payment on a on a house, and he did all this. But the thing is, he never. Just started ministering to boys. Long story short, within a matter of nine months, quarter million dollars was gone. Not one boy had been ministered to, and this really embittered her. And I mean, she was fed up, boy. And I, and I had come over here. I'd been over here for a couple of years by that time. And I heard that when I, I heard when I went back that this lady had cancer. She had this horrible cancer, and I went to see her because she's an old friend. And I went to the hospital to see her. All her hair was gone because of all the chemotherapy and what have you. And I said, Florence, I said, what's wrong? I said, you know, you, you're, you're a woman that loves the Lord. You believe in healing. And she just, I said, you've changed. Your face just looks so embittered and so dark. And she just taught me, She said, I just, I just, she said, I just am still, I'm just angry still. I just was so used. And she went through this whole list of things, which were legitimate, you know. But I said, you've got to let this thing go. You've got to let it go. This guy's name was Danny. I said, you've got to let it go. I said, Danny didn't know what he was doing. You just have to forgive him, I said, because you're just, this thing is killing you. I said, I know in my spirit that a lot of what you're going through is because you are just, I mean, she was harboring this thing. It was the only conversation she had, you know what I mean? That was her whole life was around how she'd been abused by this guy who'd taken his quarter million dollars, never done anything. She, fi- I mean, she almost died twice, and people had prayed for her, people had prayed for her, all kinds of people who were strong anointings had prayed for her. She was in and out of stuff for like 18 months to two years. And I went to see her once finally, and I just said, I was coming back to England, and I said, Florence, I said, you know, we love you. And I said, you've got to let this thing go. And something happened. Something cracked in her. And I, I prayed for her. I, I ministered to her. I didn't pray for healing because everybody else had prayed for healing. But I really spoke to this, and I started speaking just those verses. I, God led me to that bit about Corinthians. And I talked to her just about that and about Paul and about reinstating somebody and about you just have to let things go. The Bible says drop it, let it go, let go of the indictment. Well, I, then I had to go back to England, but anyhow, I ministered to her. But then some other, and I told some other people that were friends in churches, and they were started sharing with her. But the long story was, that was it, the long and short of it was, I got a phone call over here years ago uh, from her, and basically, long, she just, she made, it was just as simple. She made the decision to forgive this guy. And when she really broke down, she said to me, when I, she said, something happened to me in that hospital room. And she said, I broke down and I finally just gave up. And I just said, it's not worth it. Who really cares? I mean, I have been stupid. What can I, what am I, how, I'm not affecting anybody but me. Now, it sounds obvious when you're not in it. But she finally just twigged. She saw it. She said, I'm not affecting anybody but me. And she said, I lift my hands to heaven. And she said, I just started to cry. And I said, I forgive him. I forgive him, I forgive him. And she said, Rod, I really did forgive you. I mean, she said, I really did. It just flowed out of my spirit and I could feel the weight come off of me. And two weeks later, she walked out of the hospital with no cancer. And she lived a long, lived her whole life. I mean, you know, lived healthy, long, old life until she went on home naturally. It's amazing. Bitterness, doth eat, uh, resentment doth eat like a cancer. It can cause things. I mean, the attitudes that we hold on to can fester and cause physiological problems in our bodies. And this is why Jesus sets such a store on this stuff. We've got to be able to release this stuff. And this bitterness here, like this elder son, I mean, that's so anti-Christ. It's so against all the principles of Christ whatsoever. But here but God loves this religious man and He loves us. He loves this son as much as any of the rest of them. And he goes on to say, let me just read it. I said it's evident that, uh, point C, it's evident that the father had trouble with his son, too. Here we see him angry and indignant. He's not even willing to come into the house, and the father entreats him, but his reply is definitely not that of a son. The elder son accuses the father of rewarding unfaithfulness and immorality. He would not even call the prodigal his brother, but he said, remember rather, thy son, that this son of yours. The contrast between the prodigal and the elder son. The prodigal confessed he'd sinned against heaven, while the other said he never had transgressed. The description of the elder brother's is clear. He claimed again that he'd never transgressed. He evidenced no pleasure in his father's service. I mean, he'd been with the father the whole time. Again, this is the story of religion, where you go to church, 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 you go to church and you go to church, but you just go to church. But there's no life, there's no fragrance of heaven, there's no oil left. I mean, like we often say, you know... You know what Ichabod means, remember, in the Bible? When Ichabod was written over the house, the word means the Spirit of the Lord had departed, had lifted, and it was a really horrible indictment about a church, well, we'd call it a church today. The Spirit had gone because the people had so grieved the Spirit. I've heard these old-timers say that sometimes we go into churches today, and it's true here, and it's true in America too, but you go into some of these old churches here, and at one time they were full of the oil of the Spirit of God, you know what I mean, and, and God's present truth was there, but as one fellow said it, Wigglesworth said this, he said, I go in the churches today, and he said some of the churches, he said, there's nothing left but fumes, <laughs> there's only the fumes of the oil that was there once upon a time, because the fragrance, the life is gone, and he said, Ichabod has been written upon the tops of these things. I'm just saying, boy, you know, there's just all the difference in the world between that which passes for church. I say it a lot, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm being condemnatory. I'm not. It's just that we have to be realistic. But again, God said not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. In other words, like I said, not every church is church. But the only way we can define church is through Christ, and we have to see, like right here, and see what isn't Christ-like. But To the contrast, he evidenced no pleasure in his father's service. He felt that the father actually did an injustice by pardoning his brother who had lost all that he had in sin. Let me make that statement, too, I said in the love walk that Dr. Cole taught us all those years ago. Remember, he said, wherever you find, I love this statement. I hope that you remember this little quote for all of your life because it's just, those of you that have been with us since the beginning have heard it, but I would never forget this phrase, where there's much law, there's little love. Where there's much law, there's little love. If you ever write down anything, write down that. Where there's much law, there's little love. Where there's much love, there's little law. And again, when you minister a lot in different places, it's the first, you'll begin to, you can smell it when you can walk into a place. You can actually feel it in the atmosphere where there's much law. You know what I mean? You just, oh, you, you, you know, oh, you better not do that, you know, don't do that, oh, I, I crossed the boundary. There was an unseen boundary there. I stepped on somebody's rule. And, I mean, you can just feel it. And where there's much law, there's little love. But where there's much love, there's little law. And that's a beautiful thing to know. There's not even even the necessity of a lot of law because where there's a lot of love, there's a lot less transgression of any law in the natural. The the next, next page, 27, the elder son, therefore, would not go into the house where what I call the Jesus style of ministry was. Because we're talking about the Jesus style of ministry. And I know you get bored with me saying this over and over again, but Jesus Christ, I know that I know that I know that nobody ever felt rejection in that man's presence. Hallelujah. I mean, there was nothing but acceptance radiating out of him. I mean, just constant acceptance. He didn't accept the sin, but he accepted sinners. Remember, that's the the whole thing here that they're upset with. This man is eating with preeminently wicked sinners. This is not right. This is not the way religion is. You do not mess with sinners. (laughs) Jesus sat down with them and ate with them. And to them, you know, when you sit down and ate with somebody, that's a covenant act. They said, that's crazy. That's insane. You know, even it... When I was in Israel, I remember staying. We we have a friend that lives there who is an Austrian lady who actually leads, um, because of her Austrian heritage and... Um, she feels a sense of responsibility because of some of the things that happened in World War II. And she leads um, Krakow, places like that. She leads teams of people back into the death camps uh, where the concentration camps were. And she leads them back there to repent and things like that. But she has this beautiful home in one of the hills there in Jerusalem. And uh, we stay there with her when we go. And But you have to park up by her house on this hill and walk down this little street. And all the Orthodox Jews that live around her... I, I, I remember seeing, like, the little children, you know, and I'm just, I'm a I'm just a friendly guy, and I remember feeling so bad because I just, hi, hi, this little girl, little Jewish little girl, little boy, they were just playing, and I just sat, kind of sat down, and they, a marble or something they had to come to the ground, and I just sit there and flicked it back to them, and just was smiling at them, you know, and just, did, I mean, Julie was right there, too, so it wasn't like I was some dirty old man, and this father come running out of the house, man, and grabbed his kids up and gave me a look like death warmed over and... And, uh, you know, because I wasn't a Jew, I wasn't orthodox. And I I remember and I I just closed my eyes real tight and I thought to myself, you know, it just I mean, the whole spirit of what that says and to to think that we have it in our churches today, but just what it means to to judge people when you don't even know people or judge situations. I think, my God, what kind of a bondage is it to carry that with you? And yet they then, when they gather together, have these incredible parties and everything's fine when we're, you know, when you're with your own thing, you have your own little dances and your own little this and your own little that. And we're just such great people, but we don't want to have anything to do with those people. And it's just exactly the, I mean, they're still stuck in a 2,000-year-old something, you know. But we we have that in Christian churches, don't we? I mean, we have that, you know, it's like in the old... In the South, still in the States, I mean, like, again, the idea of, of a woman with earrings or, or uh, you know, a woman uh, in churches. I mean, we have friends. Julie has a friend right now says so she cannot go to church without having something in her hair because, again, you know, this thing about a woman with having her head covered. I mean, the legalism, the legalism that's just to think that God will judge you, to think that you will be less loved of God because of that is so I don't know. Insane to me, it's unbelievable. But this is what we have to stay free from. Where there's much law, my friends, there's always going to be little love. But where there's a lot of love, there's going to be much law. Much where there's a lot of love, there's going to be little law. And I always remember, I was I quote this all the time to Rick Joyner when Rick and I first got to know each other from uh, the Turning, what have you, that we did. But I always love the fact that I, I never will forget, like Morning Star. You know, they're most incredible musicians, like I said, in the world. And I always remember, you know, Susie, Susie, if anybody remembers Susie Wills, I mean, and you know, she's just a, the most uninhibited person of worship there is on the planet. She's probably the, one of the truest worshipers of God on the earth today. She just is, you know. But she's just so free and so loose before God, but she is so holy before God. But people that are religious, they watch her dance and they watch what she does and it just flips them out, you know. But nevertheless, I always remember they got done worshiping one and what have you, and Rick, remember, he comes <laughs> up to get ready preaching. And he's their spiritual father. And he just turned around and he looked, looked at him and smiled. Thanks, Susie. Thanks, Leonard. And thanks all the group. And he turned around and he just kind of looked down, getting his notes. Read, and he looked up and he said, he said, I know that not everything they do is in the spirit, but he said, that's okay. I give them their freedom. And that really spoke volumes because I what I mean is he was their father. See, he was fathering them. And in other words, you don't jump on somebody every single time. You love people into change. You know what I mean? There's a time to correct. There's a time to show them how to do something a little bit better and what have you. But if you're always Mr. Corrector, (laughs) we'll put it this way, do you enjoy being around somebody that's always Mr. Corrector? You know what I mean? Always. I mean, nobody feels comfortable in that. The elder son would not go into the house where the Jesus style of ministry was, the kind of ministry that welcomes and receives sinners. Religious folk and ministers will not partake of, quote, these kind of churches. You don't want to go there. All mankind was lost, yet it seems easier to minister to someone who knows they're a sinner than to a religious person who has, quote, always been around church. And again, that's a picture of the elder brother. He's always been around church. And he's got structure in him to the nth degree. This is why... I say over and over again, too, you know, I know a lot of doctrine. I mean, being the principal of a, you know, large Bible school at one time, one have you. But the point is, somewhere along the way I learned, like I said, that it's, it's not doctrine that changes your life. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And I would rather introduce somebody to the man Jesus than teach them the doctrine of Jesus, if, if you see what I mean. This This is... What's the most important? Are they both important? They're both important. Is doctrine important? Absolutely, better be. Absolutely important. But sometimes, like I said, we can be so right that we're wrong. And that's where the theologians get in trouble. And I'm not against theologians. I've got many, many, many theologians as very close friends. But there's all the difference in the world, like I said, between those that are so legalistic that you feel every word you say, they're going to debate than people that just know Jesus. You can sh- you can sh- oh the difference is day night, outwardly well. Then I've got down here Romans five fifteen. That's the verse we use so much when we teach on grace. Remember it says that the grace of God is out of all proportion to the fall of man. The grace of God is out of all proportion to the fall of man. Neither is it at all to be compared to the fall. Remember that when we taught that. Those of you there. to me the most powerful teaching there is. I tell you outwardly the elder brother had been the better of the two. Now listen to that. Outwardly the elder brother had been the better of the two. But in the end, the younger is the one who came the quickest to give God his whole heart. And I just put down here why I've been in church all these years, and I never get blessed like that. The father continues to reason with the elder son too because he loves him. And as I said, the elder brother is a type of religious self-righteousness. Again, again, all these things are what Jesus is trying to communicate to who? These Pharisees and Sadducees. And Paul says, he warns Timothy about this in the pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy 3, 5, where Paul said, Beware of those those who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. A lot of people have the form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. When you come to God in a broken and a contrite spirit, He will always readily receive you. Amen. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through... Uh, lesson 9 but I want to get to lesson 10 that's what I want to get to but I want to read through this because lesson lesson 9 has within it again the parable of the sower and, when, and those of you that come on Saturdays we're, we've just taught that there But so if you'll permit me though just because again what I need to do for this tape for others let me just read through this and go ahead and turn to Matthew 13 Matthew's version of the parable of the sower if you would Matthew chapter 13 I'm going to start reading from the top of page 28, lesson 9. It says, The Sermon of the Seven Parables. Jesus delivered a sermon to the multitudes from a boat on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. In this sermon, there are seven parables, all of which relate in some way to each other. They give a prophetic foreview of developments in the church which are visible in this dispensation. Its small beginning, the church, is portrayed by a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds. Now, again... I'm not going to get to the mustard seed, but it's, an, it's a very interesting. The mustard seed, it says, it speak, it, the, the whole parable of the mustard seed, this little thing that grows up and becomes larger than any other tree, so large, it says, that the fowls of the air dwell therein. All through Scripture, when it speaks to the fowls of the air, that always is a type of satanic emissaries, satanic things. And he's actually likening the church. And this is the mystery. When we get to the wheat and tares, there's going to be something I'm going to read from an old book by J.J. Ross. But this is what people don't understand, that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, the word Catholic (laughs) in the very beginning, it meant universal. The word means universal. There was one church in the beginning, you know, in the book of Acts. The church grew, and what happened when you study church history is after the first apostolic fathers began, even before their demise, this is what Paul speaks to in Galatians when he speaks about all the Judaizing teachers that came in and began to pervert the truth about grace. So you'd have somebody come in and say, well, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, all right. But, you know, where Paul said this, I kind of think he meant this, and so they started a tangent. And so people began to group themselves to that tangent. And then somebody else said, yeah, well, I believe that and I believe what Peter said, too, but I believe also this. And basically what I'm trying to say is denominationalism began right in the very beginning through basic but very simple perversion of the truth. I think I shared with you the other day, didn't I, like a second Corinthians three, where Paul said, I'm afraid for you. Remember that just like Eve was beguiled by the subtlety of Satan, that your minds should be corrupted away from the simplicity that's in Christ. The word simplicity means the purity of Christ, the innocency, the the basic foundational innocency and truth and purity, what the message was. But people, where people come in and people, ideas, where people do not, like they say, cling violently to the first truth, they began to bring in their own little bitty doctrines. Well, all denominationalism sprang from that, and Jesus typifies that with this mustard seed, uh, this mustard seed parable. When he talks about, he said, "This seed it grows quicker than any seed," and he said, "It springs up and becomes very big, even to the point that the fowls of the air begin to nest in it." And he speaks about all the isms and all the things that began to be birthed inside the church that were not of the church. Uh, I, I'm just, just we're going to get to that a little later, so just be patient. But I. Uh, let me just keep reading here. It's in these seven parables, the sermon of the seven parables, all of them relate in some way to each other. They give a prophetic foreview of developments in the church which are visible in this dispensation. It's small, the church's small beginning is portrayed by the mustard seed, the church's, which is the smallest of seeds, but eventually, even as the small mustard seed grows into a tree, the kingdom of heaven would experience a similar unhealthy growth. In time, even it in time, even as the birds of the air find lodging in the tree, so the messengers of Satan would find shelter in the kingdom of heaven. We will look at the parables of the sower and of the wheat and the tares. As stated before, all the kingdom operates upon the seed principle. Now, Genesis 822, like I said, we just need to read through this. While the earth remaineth, this is again a principle set forth right in the beginning of Genesis. This is again an example of the law, what's called the law of first mention, where a principle is set forth that runs throughout all Scripture. In seed time and harvest, the principle of seed is something that's set in motion from the beginning. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the parable of the sower, this is Matthew's version, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. This parable explains... What will be the reception of the gospel by the various classes of people who hear it? The sermon assumes that they have already had opportunity to know something of Christ's kingdom and have had time to show their reaction to it. It concerns the fate of the gospel to the people to whom it is preached. We would all like to think that the gospel, when truly preached, would bring salvation to everyone who hears it. The word of God brought worlds into existence, it brought light out of darkness, it brought life out of death, yet according to the parable, only about one-fourth of those who heard it were saved by it. Why? This is the mystery that the parable explains. Christ is the sower going forth to sow the seed, which is the word of God. The field is the world, not geographically, but the whole social order of the world. The field has four kinds of soil, each pointing to a different class of hearers. And let me just start reading so we can just read it. Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting beside the sea. But such great crowds gathered about him that he got into a boat and remained sitting there while all the throng stood on the shore. I think this is God calling me to a yacht ministry. Don't you think so? <laughs> to be scriptural, I should just get in a boat. and start. My wife agrees with that totally. And he told them many things in parables, stories by way of illustration and comparison, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell by the roadside, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they had not much soil, and at once they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they dried up and withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and yielded grain some a hundred times as much as was sown and some 60 times as much and some 30. He who has ears to hear, let him be listening and let him consider and perceive and comprehend by hearing. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he replied to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets and the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now see, all of this is about how The kingdom operates, kingdom, dominion of the king. Seek ye first the kingdom. And then all these things that the Gentiles ask for shall be added unto you and more also. And again, it means find out how the kingdom operates and you'll begin to be able to function intelligently and the things that God has made available to you will begin to come into your life. He says, And he replied to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets and the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Verse 12, For whoever has spiritual knowledge, to him will more be given, and he will be furnished richly, so that he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. This is the reason that I speak to them in parables, because having the power of seeing, they don't see. Having the power of hearing, they do not hear, nor do they grasp or understand. In them indeed is the process of fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, which says you shall indeed hear and hear, but never grasp and understand. You shall indeed look and look, but never see. For this nation's heart has grown gross and fat and dull, and their ears are heavy and difficult of hearing. Their eyes they have tightly closed, lest they would see and perceive with their eyes, and hear and comprehend the sense with their ears, and grasp and understand with their heart, and turn, and I could heal them. But blessed and happy and to be envied are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous men, men who were upright and right of God, yearned to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and they did not hear. Listen then to the meaning of the parable of the sower. When anyone is hearing the word of the kingdom and does not grasp or comprehend it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the roadside. As for what was sown on thin, rocky soil, this is he who hears the word, and once they welcome it, they accept it with joy, yet they have no real root in themselves, but is temporarily inconstant, they last but a little while, and when affliction or trouble or persecution comes, on account of the word, at once he is caused to stumble, he is repelled, and he begins to distrust and desert him who he ought to trust and obey, and he falls away. Verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world, and the pleasure, and the delight, and the glamour, and the deceitfulness of riches, they choke, and they suffocate the word, and yields no fruit. And for what was sown on good soil, this is he who hears the word, they grasp, they comprehend it, And he indeed will bear fruit and yield in one case a hundred times as much as was sown, in another sixty times as much, and in another thirty times as much. And he goes on. But let's just, like I said, read through the outline here. The sower by the wayside. And again, he said, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understands it not. This is why you need to ask God for understanding. I mean, please keep things simple in your prayer life. Father... Grant me understanding. I mean, I must say that out loud 20, 30 times a day. I mean, I just stop for a moment, close my eyes, said, Father, grant me understanding of these things. I need you to speak to me again in a way that I'll understand. The word understanding in the Greek means to fully comprehend the nature, the character, and the functioning of something, to understand it, to have a firm foundation of it. He said, when any man hears the word of the kingdom and they don't understand it, it says, then comes the wicked one. And he'll catch away that which was sown in their heart. He said, this is he that receives seed by the wayside. This soil had been rich and abundant, but it had become unreceptive because of its hardness. This human condition can be caused by circumstances and experiences or, or influences that have been brought to bear on it. This can be called or also described, as I said, just old-fashioned indifference. People just, they don't know how to hear anymore. I mean, you've got to train yourself to hear. I used to teach my students for two weeks on how to study when we had the whole Bible school going. And uh, in Mark 4:24, in this whole parable, of the sower, Jesus says it this way in the Amplified. He said, the measure... Listen, the measure of thought and study, small measure, large measure, spoon, shovel, wheelbarrow. The measure of thought and study that you give to the truth that you hear determines the measure of virtue and knowledge that comes back to you. When he said, If any man has ears to hear, let him hear, he said, You need to choose to listen. You need to choose. To listen, you have to make a choice. I used to tell them, "I don't care if a train, I said, it comes to the classroom. I don't want you to be distracted. <laughs> I want you to train yourself towards that end." Remember, I gave you that little statistic when I wrote this article on listening for somebody a while back about how the human uh, ear, or rather the human the human mind, it's very interesting. They, we listen, we listen. We listen at the rate, they say, of 150 to 250 words per minute. But we think at the rate of 2,500 to 3,500 words per minute. In other words, we think over 10 or 12 times faster than we listen. And the only reason I think that's important is because it shows you that there's a vast difference between having these eardrums tickled (laughs) where the vibrations strike it and you're hearing a sound and intentional listening. And I'm telling you, listening is intentional. We all know we can turn off, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> no, of course you can. And, I, and you know, and even like this, and this, like I said, like I was trying to be very honest when I started this. I know that like, these teachings right here aren't necessarily as inspirational as some of the stuff we do with the other things. And when I was in Bible school, we had to go through, like, when we were in New Testament survey, Old Testament survey, we were going through courses. I mean, honest to God, I, you know, I wanted to sleep through the whole course. Drove me nuts, I mean, some of the stuff, you know. But I, I mean, I've got my old notebooks. I'm sitting there writing like this, and I fell asleep. My pen went down. I still, I actually have my pen to go down there. And I know, and I know just, just, and I would sit there and go, oh, my gosh, man. God help me. Please help me. But I would force myself, and I just fought, and i said, say, I'm going to get something out of this stuff if nobody does. I just, you know, and I just made a decision. I'm going to hear. And but for some reason, you know, God had mercy on me back in those days. And I mean, he taught me way back on to pray before I ever went to invest. I mean, I remember I'd go to classes and get nothing. And he said, that's because you never invested anything into it. He said, if you'd pray before you got there, he said, you'll get something out of it. he said, You've not, you're not sowing anything, so you're not reaping anything. And a little simple things, and I made a decision, like before I'd go to church, I'm going to pray for this church service. I don't care if nobody else does. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get something out of this church service. I, I just got almost antagonistic about it, and when I was going to school, I said, I'm going to get something out of these classes. I'm going to hear. It. I'm going to hear. It. It's just a choice. And this is what Jesus means. Otherwise, like I said, see, you can hear something, and it never produces any fruit. You can become indifferent. Some hearts are hard because of prolonged resistance to the Lord's calling until finally the Spirit of God has been withdrawn. And that's an incredible thing here in Genesis 6-3. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. But there's a truth there that very simply God's Spirit doesn't continue to strive. I mean, you can harden your heart to the point where he says, Okay, God will. He'll just say, "Mm, All right doesn't mean he doesn't love you. See, it's just like the prodigal's father. But he will honor your choices. It's like here in Hosea four seventeen about Ephraim. It said Ephraim is joined to idols. This is God speaking. Ephraim has joined himself to idols, Leave him alone. Let him alone. It is written that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but not until the king hardened it first. We see in Romans 1, I've got all these verses, Romans 1, 18-28, where people worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And it says the Bible says God gave them over. And people miss that sometimes. If people keep making hard choices against God, you can get to the place where God will say, go for it. You can have what you want. You can have your way. Um, anyhow, several different ones here. Acts 19, 9, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe, publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. <coughs> Matthew 7, 6, don't cast your pearls before swine, many things like that. I put down here, yet there is hope for this soil if it can only be stirred up. Many hardened hearts and calloused men have had their hard cores penetrated and have in the end brought forth some of the best fruit of the field. Jeremiah 4, 3, Hosea 10, 12, both speak of, quote, breaking up the fallow ground. Another danger to these kind of hears is that if they wait too long, the birds of the air, which always represent the emissaries of Satan, will come and seal away the seed that is sown until it's lost. No fruit, therefore. Stony ground, again, I've got to really hurry now. Stony ground, which is a thin layer of soil, is lays upon bedrock. The soil is good. There's just not enough of it. The result is that when the grain falls upon it, it germinates quickly, springs up, gives promise of bringing a substantial harvest. But since the rock hinders its roots from going down deep, it puts forth its energies upward into the stalk. However, because there's little soil and moisture to feed the plant, it's unable to resist the scorching sun, so it withers and it dies. This kind of upward soil represents the superficial and impulsive hearers of the gospel. There's no real depth to their life. They have a surface relationship only. And that's Matthew 13, 20, and 21. This class of hearers receives the word with joy at first. This is normally because of contemplation of the great benefits to be received without the consideration of the cost, the hazards, and the sacrifice involved. Similar to the rich young ruler who desired eternal life but could not pay the price, These are they who observe that all is fair and beautiful in Christianity. It's a lovely teaching, but they don't realize that following Christ sometimes does indeed mean a hard war against Satan, the world, and sin. Having no roots, they have no stability. By contrast, faith in the unseen causes the true Christian to count the present affliction light in comparison to the future glory that will be achieved. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. The thorn-choked soil, Matthew 13:22. he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. They choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Nothing is said here about the soil being hard or too thin. Here the soil is good, but the trouble is that it was sown with another kind of seed, that of thorns. The Bible speaks in several places of not mingling your seed with that of foreign seed. Leviticus 19, 19, Ezra 9:2, 9, 2, Daniel 2:43. 2, Wheat and thorns cannot grow together and both prosper. The soil can only give so much nourishment. The stronger will choke out the weaker. And unfortunately, weeds always grow the fastest. Thorns will outdistance the growth of any grain. They crowd in upon the wheat. They shut out the air and the light. They draw away from the good seed the moisture and the nourishment necessary for growth. Thus the good grain is dwarfed and stunted and unable to bring forth the harvest. And, of course, he says that the thing that choke the soil, he says, are the cares of this world. The cares of this world, you know, the absorption, the absorption of daily life with all its concerns, its time schedules to meet, etc., He said, the deceitfulness of riches, the false glamour that attracts so many and begins to give such satisfaction that they have less and less time to give to spiritual things. Worldly amusements, well, we could talk about that all month, couldn't we? These can distract and crowd out spiritual things as well. Many are trying to grow a crop of Christianity and worldliness at the same time. They're trying to grow a double harvest. Of course, this can only result in failure. In the end, these people bring no fruit to perfection. The good ground. The Greek word is kalos, which means beautiful, valuable, or virtuous. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understands it, and he brings forth fruit—some a some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The secret of the good soil is, it says. But they, is, you find it here's in Luke's version of the same parable, Luke eight fifteen. It says, but they on the good ground are they which in an honest and a good heart having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Again, the word keep means to hold down fast to seize. Patience means cheerful consistency. So put very simply, those with good ground are those who make a decision to be doers of the word and not hearers only, who keep their hearts tender before the Lord by hiding themselves continually in him. Amen. We're just going to stop right there and then we'll take this last hour and go to the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, Father, again, we thank you for your word. Just help us walk through this stuff, Father. We pray that you'd help us to imbibe it and let it become part of us in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.